Welcome to the one within all back to another episode of the Interverse. I'm your host Chance and man, am I excited about today's episode. For the last five years since being introduced to his work by a friend of mine, I have been following Michael Tesserion quite closely and despite my best efforts, not even able to keep up with the mountain of research and content and material that he puts out there for us. Michael is a very amazing individual who probably no one in my life have I ever heard speak about selfhood to the degree that my own inner feelings about selfhood have ever reached. So uh, we're going to be having that type of conversation today about (laughs) philosophy, about selfhood, about collectivism. There's so many things on the table that we're only even going to be looking at a tiny sliver and fraction of the overall web of ideas that Michael puts forth on his channel, unslave.com, where for premium members, you are able to get hundreds of podcasts, lots of presentations on a variety of topics from conspiracy to philosophy and psychology. And probably the greatest thing about Michael's work is that he keeps the flame alive of previous thinkers who have already covered the ground that we're trying to get back to. As uh, an example, Soren Kierkegaard says, life is not a puzzle to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. And if that wouldn't help us out in our times, I don't know what would. (laughs) I could probably read about five different quotes I've pulled from uh, his book, his own words and other thinkers that he puts in there. And just for that fact alone, his books are worth reading because you'll get ammunition to (laughs) handle naysayers on any variety of subjects just through people who they might have seen as an authoritarian thinker by way of what the crowd says, having never looked into the individual's work themselves. But as Michael says in his book, Disciples of the Mysterium, which a lot of today's material will be based in, all that is necessary for the voyage of discovery to begin is the will to know. The rest comes in time along the way. <laughs> and the will to know has a lot to do with the questions of who am I and why am I here? These questions that lead us from the realm of problems to the realm of mystery. Mystery also being a clever way of saying my story, as opposed to being historical or hysterical. (laughs) And uh, really, selfhood is the goal here. So I I will go ahead and get us started. Make sure you check out unslave.com for Michael's work. He has an awesome co-host, David Whitehead, who you may have seen on this program in the past. And self-love, the only kind of love there is, the ground of being, as Michael says, that'll be the biggest topic that hopefully we constantly circle around. And so I'm I'm ready to get started. (laughs) That's my best introduction I can give of such a grand research collection. And I'm really glad to have you here, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Chance. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's always good to talk to somebody who knows their stuff. And again, big thanks to you for helping with the premiums. Uh, The last whole bunch we've been doing has been, you've been in the control room helping with all of the technical side and uh, Brotherhood of Death would be the latest one. People listening to this in the future, as soon as that premium goes up for members, uh, you know, again, it's largely because of your technical skill and help with that project. So it's great to collaborate as well as chat. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Yeah, those presentations have been really great for me because I'd be watching them anyway. I definitely don't mind lending a hand on the control room side. Brotherhood of Death was a very interesting one where you demonstrate the collusion between the, the royal powers and the Vatican in, the, in your homeland of Ireland, which I didn't mention, that's where you hail from. And uh, I think that that's really admirable work and difficult, probably, coming from your background to be looking at topics that the rest of your countrymen have been completely mind-controlled out of even 
having as a possible thought experiment. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. It's just, uh, it started so early that love, you know, of, of doing it that we're, you know, so many years on now that it just makes sense. I think you and I spoke up before that. See if you put a lot of energy into something like a piece of music or uh, any kind of a creative art. And, and this is creative art, what we're doing. It starts to own you. So part, it's very hard for me to talk about personal journey. It always was from the beginning. It's even more impossible now because it's not like a journey at all. It's like something is moving you. You know, it's not your will and saying, okay, you know, I can make a diary entry of all of this. It's like a flow, right? So in many ways, uh, despite the dangers and the other, not even so much the dangers of being, you know, beaten up or uh, warned off or anything like that, that's, it's, it's just other difficulties of just having people that you think would be more supportive of your work turning out to not be supportive of it or you know people in your family and and other so the the other and even in financial issues you know the work it takes means that you have to work part-time at a regular job and that's dead end and then finally after you give it up you know which is which is very very troublesome anxiety ridden years you know uh and you're getting further and further away because then, you know, with the whole resume scene and everything like that, you know, you lose a job or you take time off, you can't so easily get back because they're wondering where have you been and you can't, you can't open up and say, oh, I'm a conspiracy researcher, uh, researcher. I'm showing about shadow government and all to an average Joe, you know, person who's maybe a complete, completely horrified by that statement. So there's, there's a lot of other pitfalls in this movement, you know, it's because you can't go along with the mainstream and really do the kind of work I've done. So it means that you're against the mainstream. They don't leave you any middle ground. They really don't. So earning, just earning a living in the, all of these things can become very, very, very difficult. But you're quite right. If I had tried to stay in Ireland and do this, well, they wouldn't, you couldn't have done it. Jim Cairns will prove that, you know, uh, other people who've tried it. That's an absolute fact, because on both sides of the spectrum, you will be a pariah. And you could, you could easily fall foul of somebody who's taken you wrong. You know, and they're very violent. So that, that could you end up in serious, serious, serious trouble by going down into any occult aspect of that whole troubles period. Yeah, yeah. people but, in the United States probably, I mean, your research and even putting it out there is uh, most likely going back before the birth of some of our listeners right now. Yeah. And I think that many of even older individuals wouldn't realize if they're from United States, just what the troubles were really like. I mean, that's a yeah. side tangent. You've done so much work on that, but the little tiffs we see in the streets here over this and that are nothing compared to the out and out carnage that was engineered in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Over the over the many years, there's you know literally thousands of people killed, and even during the troubles, which started around 1969, 1970, those thousands killed. And they were killed in violent bomb attacks, horrendous uh, shootings, you know, people busting in your door, running up the stairs, you know, and, and blowing your whole family away just because they, and it might have been a very actually trivial thing, actually, you know, sometimes there were warnings, other times there weren't. So whole, whole tons just disappeared, you know, like Oma, for instance, you know, as we mentioned that, but Oma is just one town that had, a, you know, I remember waking up in the morning or being wakened up, you know, feeling that the glass was going to go in of the house. And this was a bomb attack, you know, over two, three miles away. The, the utter impact would just d devastate whole streets and whole communities. And 
one day, one time in the seventies, they blew up the gas works, and that just felt like Armageddon, you know, because it, they set a bomb off, and, and of course gas explodes and stuff like that. So there was there was sometimes very there was bombs left in your street where kids right at the corner where kids played. I mean, almost like deliberately left where loads of kids kick the ball around and play at these little sort of halves or squares, you know, uh, massive Centex explosive bombs were left and the army had to come and defuse them. And uh, yeah, frightening, you know, people were left out of their house for hours while they had to stand in the freezing cold at the end of the street, uh, you know, and you didn't know when you could get back into your houses. So it was like a kind of a war zone, something similar to what you might have in, say, Beirut. You know, because there's other hotspots in the world, obviously. But this thing just went on and on and on for the best part of 30 years. And then before the 1970s, there had been troubles as well. And terrorist organizations also were sort of like finding what footing they were really on. Some some were very radical left, and they moved to center. Others had been center, but moved more to extreme. Others were nonviolent, became violent. Others were violent and became nonviolent. So there was a tremendous move. I hope that came across in the presentation I did. On it because I wanted to give that feeling that these organizations never stayed consistent. You know, the terrorist organizations, they they flux, there was a lot of flux. There were some groups that just never what you know, they were Republican, they were hardcore against the British establishment, but they never endorsed violence. And then there was others who said, without violence, there's never going to be any change because these intractable royals or the intractable British government, without, you know, without some sort of uh, pushing back in the more violent way, they're never going to change. They own an empire all over the world, from South Africa to India to Pakistan. You know, they own this giant empire. They're hard to push around. We may be small Ireland, but we've got to fight violently. So you had your violent men come in, right? And that's uh, not something I, I support. Yeah, your you know, work I, really seems like important more than ever to keep other places from getting to that point. If uh, enough of us shouting in the wilderness can help bring a little more selfhood to the picture and uh, I think what's interesting is that at the root of this manipulatability of the minds of men is, uh, first of all, they think usually they're fighting for freedom or justice or something like that. You know, they're carried away with that idea, but they're uh, at the root. I think we've actually been divided in ourselves between body and mind. Probably the very first thing that is done by priestarchies of various stripes to get that key schizophrenia in, in embedded in the individual's consciousness, which is the very beginning of playing the game of divide and conquer, of playing two sides off of each other. It starts within the individual. And so I'm going to quote Disciples of the Mysterium, a book that I wish I'd read 15 years ago, <laughs> although I mm. think it's a book I could read many times in my life and, and see more. Uh, you, you say, to attain great understanding about life, we need only face the intelligible fact before us, namely that incorporeal minds do indeed exist within corporeal bodies. This self-evident coexistence of mind and body, which we irrationally insist on regarding as separate entities, is of paramount significance. It tells us something. So you kind of go on to explain the, the idea that consciousness is a gift given us by the body. And uh, I think that that's very interesting. I've never seen the dividing line between consciousness and matter. So that first key step, I think, is really important on the individuation path. Definitely. Definitely. In fact, you can't even really get off to the right start without it. Although we're living in a very Gnostic-infused planet where you'd be amazed how 
seekers, even after enlightenment or whatever, still fail to get that right when they're quite far down the road. And, and, it, and it can lead to a psychosis, as it often does if you don't have it together. You know, because you have to have your feet on the ground and your head in the stars. That's perfectly fine. But a lot of people have their head in the stars or the clouds and they've lost their root and the root being the body. But unfortunately, because we've grown up with religions that are deeply Gnostic, and I don't mean that in any positive sense, I think of that as an extreme pestilence of history and of consciousness, they've left that out. So, oh, and in many ways, the relationship with the body is so, uh, you know, necrophilus that a lot of people's spiritual journey begins in order to get away from the body, if, 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 if you see that. So it's really bad. The spiritual journey they think they're on is actually, from its very start, something that is uh, unsustainable because it's some discomfort that they have being a self, being a body that's actually initiated the journey that they call spiritual. Well, that's, you know, and even history shows you that that you know, doesn't work. But unfortunately, all over the world today, you still have that. You still have a lot of people going into religions and ascetic paths. Uh, you have it in the West with the New Age movement. Uh, it's not all bad, but a, a great deal of this Gnosticism has entered in. You know, well-meaningly, there was a certain hermeticism, and, and probably there still is, but that's getting harder and harder to find, hermeticism being a more sound, positive, and body-concerned, body you know, sort of setting. Uh, I, I agree like with a lot of that. Say, like, for instance, to give a concrete example, you know, say Hatha Yoga, people will know what that is, right? Hatha Yoga, that, that to me is acceptable, you know, within limits, because it is body-centered. So... Whereas Raja Yoga and some of the other ones, you know, are not. They're, they're again, practitioners may not realize it until later on. But you see, along these paths, you need to be very, very astute. You need to be watching the path. You need to be asking questions all the time of these different yogic paths that you may join. Uh, people just turn their minds off. But, you know, when I was involved with a lot of this stuff, I kept asking questions. And I'm glad I did because it finally showed me the underbelly and these constant themes of world negation, earth negation. Um, life negation, actually, you know, if you go to the extent of, say, an Alvin Boyd Kuhn, one of those great names, then he's talking about the cult of mortification, the cult of asceticism, which is by no means a truly spiritual thing. It's actually anti-spiritual. And you, you and I have talked about it with the cyberpunk tarot, because whoever invented that tarot, whoever created it, and I actually mean the imagery of it, they are totally possessed with that kind of thinking, right? Their, their thinking is in every one of those cards almost an inversion, you know, of how I say the hermeticists who invented the tarot were thinking. So it's like a complete inversion. And we've explored that at great depth. And I know you have on your channel as well. Those cards really do just tell you the whole story of yeah. the process of, uh, you know, the opposite of individuation. What we see in society with this body, like body dysphoria, which is a subject that I'm sure we'll probably get into more later. Uh, is that, you know, you just have a bunch of people that are floating heads disconnected from a body. How can you experience selfhood when the physical aspect of yourself is seen as lower or, or dirty or a prison, a cage? And I think the concept, one of the concepts that you brought out when, to me that I hadn't heard of before is the contrarium. You often have called it the hallmark of the creator. And I think this is an interesting segue because you might think of body and mind as a contrarium, as in, in opposition. But what that concept philosophically shows us is that all of these opposites are uh, 
And even the disharmony between them is actually a leading to harmony. It, it's originary disharmony that it is actually the grounds of being itself that without it, we'd have no reality to experience something along those lines is how I, how would you explain the, the contrarium? Yeah, just as you did. And uh, it's also, uh, it manifests in consciousness as a kind of restlessness because the, you know, the description you gave is so deep. It's outside of our experience. We don't experience the contrarium as the contrarium, right? Uh, it's more theoretical. But obviously, just to even get consciousness out of unconsciousness and actually to get self-consciousness out of consciousness, animals are conscious, but they're not really self-conscious. Some animals are more than others, but basically the animal kingdom, nature itself is, is conscious and philosophically, but not self-consciousness. Human beings are self. Well, even to get that tripartite change presumes a kind of imbalance. But see, when we say these words in English, it immediately sets people off in a certain trend of thought. In German philosophy, it doesn't, they don't come out that way. To talk about an underlying disharmony or whatever is by no means, you know, a statement that is uh, negative. It's understood as the flow of the Geist or spirit, you know, just like when you walk, right? There's, there's a pulsation, there's a peristalsis. Uh, and so realizing that, realizing that so easily we can get fooled by the language, these original German mystics who came up with the idea did try other metaphors. You know, Jakob Bohm used the idea of, of a dark and a white light, which is very similar to the yin-yang, actually, concept. He tried metaphors. He tried to avoid devil and God, you know, all the traditional ones coming out of, uh, that because that was too extreme, because the contrarium is not just black or white in the sense of the way the Christians, because the Christians picked up on the contrarium uh, themselves, uh, but their iteration of it was puerile. You know, it was just an extremely evil God on one side, a deity and a very good God on the other side. And it just makes no sense at all, right? So many, many traditions are based on this, but they're also based on a trying to get away from it. So these Jakob bombs and all were trying to find a, go to the heart of Meister Eckhart. They were trying to go to the heart of religion and salvage what was important about it. Well, it didn't really work. You know, they fell, they were heretics. Later on, the German idealists, three, four guys, you know, uh, and five of you include Immanuel Kant himself, like a sort of proto-idealist. They call him a transcendental idealist. Uh, they tried to salvage it too. Uh, you know, one more convoluted than the other in a way, you know, it, it, it's still in their attempts to salvage the truth of, of this particular aspect of metaphysics, some were more successful than others, right? And so that's where that study then begins. But yeah, in general, the way we, on the most practical level, we, ex we experience it as bi unit, you know, bipolarity or uh, polarity dualism. Right. So all the dualisms that we know, and we also experience it as temperamentally as a kind of restlessness. So you're quite right. Although there is a unison, um, you know, although there are, uh, you could, see, you couldn't have body and mind. They're so related. This is the strange paradox of things. One contains the other, right? In fact, mind doesn't contain body. Body contains mind. So there has to be, you know, a jigsaw-like unity. But at the same time, there's this underlying, you know, attention. And then that tension manifests not just in body and mind, but between left and right hemispheres of the brain and, and everything, inhale and exhale, uh, you know, uh, joy and, and uh, sorrow, you know, and every man. And that's what Disciples of Mysterium was basically about. You know, it went off in other directions, but the main idea of that book was to just reintroduce, you know, in the modern age, this idea of the 
contram. It's not the word they use, but I really don't even remember where I got it from. But uh, it just seemed to me to be the right word for it um, to to indicate that. So so it's a necessary restlessness because without it, life wouldn't exist. Consciousness, life is based on a disharmony, and this is the true Western mystical tradition. So any all these other religions who try to frame it differently, you know, uh, are are already deceiving you, right? So it was very, very important for me in Path of the Fool, in everything I've done, you know, in various articles, and then what you're talking about, yeah, it, it needed to come out again so that we can have a reset. So if people, you know, younger people today want to say, I'm a bit wary. I think there's been a lot of lies told in this movie. They're right. It has. So I was very conscious of that. And so, you know, after 2009 or 10, when other projects like Architects of Control got out of the way, and as I stepped more, it was about 2010, we successfully did some very good podcasts you know on psychology it was a big relief because i'd waited you know god knows 10 20 years to, to do it so and i never forget it was during the time when alex jones's uh i think it was called the fall of america or whatever his, his uh program that came out at that time that that, that dvd you know I, uh, it was around about that time that then I, I did my first podcast on it and right from the point go it was very important to try and bring in this hegelianism and this uh German mysticism, you know, for people, because there's so many detractors and liars, you know, they've been, I mean, Hegel is the, the number one most misinterpreted philosopher who ever lived. Everything people know about him, you know, that he was a proto-fascist, he believed in the strong armored state and man's subservience to this and the dialectic and all, it's all lies. It all comes out of a strain of left Hegelians, you know, who, who really are Marxists. Right. And all they did was chop off all the metaphysics in Hegel, throw that into the dumpster and take a few of his, you know, minor writings on, on politics and then even even inverted that. Brilliant. But the metaphysics all went out the door. The stuff we're talking about now, that all went out the door because the dialectic is his his commentary on, you know, the contrarian, basically. You know, and earlier than that, you had Fichte who talked about the famous thesis, antithesis, synthesis, you know, uh, Hegel never used those terms. It was a previous philosopher. So, you know, the misinterpretation of that tradition is so egregious. So I've tried my best, you know, in, in episodes we've done on Hegel and all the trying to straighten that out. You know, he may have used that term one time or something, and it was borrowed. It was just a comment. And each of these men had a different iteration then, you know, an illustration of, of how this process works. Uh, but the misinterpretation where did that come from? You know, there was a need by some forces to so drastically misinterpret these men. Must have been before a reason. And I've always maintained this because they were talking the truth. So later groups, you know, the positivists of England and the pragmatists of America and many other groups, what we would now know as the cultural Marxists or the critical theorists or the postmodernists, those types, the early version of that, you know, uh, were desperate to get people away from this German thought. So, you know, I, 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 I like to teach and write on that so that, uh, you know, we can counter. Because the other thing is that all of those other paradigms have fallen, right? Does not mean then that you resurrect the thing that you were attacking in the first place? It would, logically, if we had logical people in charge. All the other materialistic and physicalistic paradigms have failed big time, you know, helped by quantum theory and helped by other things to bring it down. But still, unfortunately, that doesn't mean that we go back and dutifully resurrect the man where we, you know, left off, the, the, the guy, the tradition that was truncated because... The lie mechanism took over? Yeah, well, if the lie mechanism crumbles under its own weight, isn't it just right to resuscitate that which was before? Yeah, well, we haven't done it. So in my work, I'm one of the only people that goes back to that, you know, and says, well, okay, let's go back now before Marx 
dig out those theorists and present them truly, you know. And you and I, we've just done that work, uh, well, back-to-back works, uh, Age of Dionysus and uh, the Moral Universe, exactly based on that paradigm, you know, to bring back to the body politic, to the Western tradition. And I think it's actually vital right now. I actually think, especially for political thought, because this does have political ramifications. You know, it is talking about the state, but it's talking about the state as a manifestation of everyone's understanding that you're living out the process of Geist, right? That you are part of the journey of spirit. And this is what needs to be taught to children so that they're aware of it, to end their despair, to end their solipsism. It's just me alone in the universe, you know, or if you have deviant parenting, deviant teaching, there are certain philosophies in the West that were taught that no matter what happens to you on that level, you'll never lose your mooring. And that's part of the reason why these John Deweys and others had to completely sabotage German thought because it was so utterly spiritual. It was so deep. You know, it did, it did sort of go around the byways, like with a Joseph Campbell, and it's it snuck into Freud and Jung, and that's all great and everything. But it, you can follow the trend, follow the trails that they left, and it takes you right back to the philosophers we're talking about. But had that been a pure iteration, right, including people, many more names than we're talking about, say, say some of the Alfred North Whitehead, he, had, he was a scientist. He brought in science version of this that destroys, I mean, quantum, because there's still a lot of physicalists in quantum science who refuse to accept what quantum science has taught them, right? So it, it, say, say some of these idealists, their work had not even been stopped, prevented, or warped. Uh, you, you, the vision that I have of what would have been in the West is so illustrious, so perfect. You know, that, it, that that's what emboldens me to continue against all the odds, because it really is something quite pure. You know, and that, that, this doesn't negate other philosophers or other philosophies, right? Because uh, I'm very synthetic. I can see the connections between a lot of these things. You know, uh, th- th- there's a lot of consistency with other non-idealistic philosophy. But the very fact that idealism itself has been so utterly misinterpreted, and even champions of it today, the ones running around calling themselves, you know, neo-idealists and all, they're not quite getting getting it right. I'm not, not I'm not that you know impressed by a lot of you know what they're talking about. It seems to be missing the boat, you know, because uh, again, it's almost like they're focusing too much on the mind and not enough on the body, you know, and not much, not enough on mitwelt, you know, which is the German word for society to reconstruct society. A, a good philosophy, you know, starts with philosophy, but it it works itself down right to the personal level. It it's inclusive. Yeah. The you brought up the midwelt. I think that some of the issues with our thinking now is that we don't even have the vocabulary, like you pointed out, with the needing to come up with the word contrarium, and that some of the translations from German to English just have a completely negative connotation yep. when you're talking about disharmony or discord, which right. they meant to be actually just movement. You think about your legs. That's the duality that you run on, literally. Absolutely. I mean, it shows you right there. Your body is the template for everything else in the universe. So we, we see batteries the same way, requires polarization. We see that reproduction requires two distinct genders. And that's actually just the way f- things are generated here. And it doesn't. So if that's where life and existence comes from, how can the duality or the polarity be the enemy to be fought, you know? And uh, the occult, I, I think the occult is just advanced psychology and philosophy married together. I think that's really what you're doing when you study the occult. People have a different idea of that word, too, that it's black magic or it's something evil or 
and satanic or something. And I mean, sure, plenty of occultists are satanic in the sense that they're adversarial to life, but that doesn't mean that learning about the deep elements of yourself and the psychology of the cosmos is in some way evil. It's actually the keys to liberation. You brought up Jung, and as far as Gnostic writings go, go, he's actually got the seven sermons to the dead, which is sort of Gnostic in, in flavor. Oh, yeah. But not really in a, to me, that one doesn't seem like a, a bad path for someone to go down. And what I like in his description uh, in, that, in that story, frame story, is the idea of the pleroma, the all, which is the everything that exists and its opposite, you know, in, in sort of negation, leading to a state of void. So like the all is kind of also the same as void, a, a pure white light or a pure black light uh, or pure darkness. It's uh, undifferentiated everythingness. But he, he talks about effectiveness being part of this pleroma or power or existence, you could say. And the opposite of that would be non-effectiveness, non-power, non-existence. So whatever you do look at the whole grand scope of all the contrary elements and opposing forces of reality, at the end of the day, it leaves you with existence. Everything else it negates, but non-existence can negate nothing. Non-existence can't exist. It's <laughs> purely in our heads. And that would be a, that's something that people could get into in your work too, that existential philosophy, thinking about nothingness and how it changes our thinking. Uh, and so mm. where, where you were starting to go, which I think is key, and it's a big part of Disciples, the book, is that most humans are caught in ideas about reality and in ideas about ideas. That is the most bombshell statement if you really stop to think about it. That is where we're separating ourselves from, from nature and from self is through this scaffolding of ideas that compartmentalizes and schizophrenizes <laughs> our, our psyche. Uh, could we speak about that as we kind of move into philosophy uh, as it is the foundation of, or should be the foundation of psychology, kind of moving in that direction? Yeah, sure. Uh, so that concept, that mysteria, right, uh, is just the word I use, mysterium for one, you know, and in the end it is one. It is one big illusion, right? Because the mysterium, singular, would be the ideas we have about ourselves like the one we just had mentioned about right divorcing the body from a spiritual framework of understanding right there's mysterium but the thing is from that one then generates all the other mysteria that we find both in religion and politics and daily life you see so yeah and so what that does is it, it's really a it's a, it's a sort of a theory then or a philosophy of deconstruction because now you need to be continually doing apophatic work right which is the you know the next step here to get out of it, if, if, if your ideas have any kind of falsity, and it's not that they're all totally false, we're talking a matter of degree here, uh, an idea could just be 1% one, 1 false, right, or 90% false. Uh, we, we've had a really good crash course in the last five years in politics to see this mysteria in action, right? Uh, but the thing is that then you'd need to adopt an apophatic methodology of being able to check your ideas, not just your ideas, but feelings. See, because there's a, remember the part of the contrarium is brain and heart, masculine and feminine, male and female. It's all around us. So there's a definite need to then have a more of an apophatic educational system that teaches you how to self-critique, and and also that that's very healthy. See, if if you heard that, if somebody in the wrong heard that in the wrong ear, they think that you're talking about some sort of you know almost psychotic self inventorying, you know, to the point of obscenity. 
Well, think about this real quick, Michael. People use the word like I'm too self-conscious as if Mm. that means that they should be embarrassed of themselves or that, you know, that's a net in my circles. When people use the phrase self-conscious, they're usually referring to it in that negative sense, like as if that's not desirable. Definitely. Yeah, I see. So you have to start at the root. It's very, very difficult. Ayn Rand is very important in all of this because she tries to champion heroism, tries to uh, delineate what it really means to be a self. So the word self is probably one of the most misinterpreted words. And that's where the, there's mysterium around that. Imagine it's like, you know, imagine it's like a bacteria or something like that gathering around a thing. There's more bacteria gathered around the word self than you could possibly have enough detergent to pour over it. But, you know, the journey still must go on because we stand on the shoulders of giants like Ayn Rand and Nathaniel Brandon and people like that. So the work has largely been done by these mentors. Ours is fairly easy. And then we have this kind of technology as well. So no matter how difficult things are, you know, in this journey, I've always remembered the suffering and the difficulty of the ones who came before. Uh, not all, some were, you know, you know, more well-known and everything, but still they had difficulty because the, the world was against them, right? The critics were fierce, you know what I mean? So you just have to pick up their work. But yeah, getting back to the question, the thinking itself has this ability to think about itself, right? We're, we're the only beings who can think about thought, think about what we're feeling, and double-check our even feelings on that level as well emotionally. Uh, some people have even now, neurologists are saying that feeling is the essence of all consciousness, you know, and they're, they're right. Uh, because what, think, what we call thinking is, right, the left brain mechanisms are really just instrumental to a deeper emotive uh, relationship with life, the attunement that's mood-based. And because that gained in sophistication, other men, what we now know as the rational faculties came online, right? But they overlie. They're just sort of emanations, more sophisticated, like a finer tools, you know, for doing surgery so that we can micro uh, analyze life, logic, discrimination, discernment, judgment, right? All those higher faculties are like honed instruments, but they sit over, right? They're like strata sitting over a much uh, deeper rapport, you know, uh, with reality. And this is then translatable into the right-left brain, where the right brain would be the part of us, you know, in neurology that has that more um, omnidirectional access. I, I just call it, you know, in my work, uh, that it's, it, it is closer to what's the template of wholeness. Right? It might even be the template of wholeness. And the left brain has moved away from that into different interpretations. And there's value in that as well, because all consciousness is valuable to an extent. It's only when you take it to extremes. Now, through the bad education systems we've got, the left brain has been catered to. And therefore, it is now the master that's, you know, used to be the emissary, as some neurologists call it. Now it's become the master. And the, the other master, the previous master, the real alpha brain, has become secondary in consciousness. And it accounts for why a lot of things are wrong in our world. So, and there's different other ways of voicing that. You know, there's all sorts of different traditions. But it is a contrarium, and now uh, the contrarium is something that's moving so much gel-like that it can actually polarize to total extremes, and then it can sort of, you know, come back like mercury on a dish. You know, it can sort of crash into each other, and there's there's eras and periods and times when, you know, there's there is a sort of a harmony, right? But that that harmony can also then be a kind of a deadness, right, in which there's no movement at all, and the polarity, which is terrible in one way, can also be a tension that's very needed for a sublation to take place. So 
there's no real you know way of of passing judgment on this both whether it happens in your own life in these moments see some people tell you well yeah i had a breakdown i almost went schizophrenic and then later on they're going but it was the best time of my life because all the all the lies died that's what that's what i mean and the time when somebody's happy and three garages full of stuff and everything's moving they're they're totally dead inside so this is what i mean on the social and the spiritual level spirit the German idealists were trying to say the spirit has experienced this. Spirit, spirit is a very dynamic, you know, thing. And we needed to be taught the dynamics of this. Hegel was just a man who said, I want to stand up in the front of my class and teach this to children so that they're tuned in to the fact that when they have personal difficulties, right, depressions, miasmas, they're able to compute it in, in terms of the greater spirit. So they never feel alienated. Alienation, alienation was probably the most frequently word used by Hegel, right? You know, because they've left all this out, right? The things he really taught, yeah, well, you're never going to find out because they... They've gone off misrepresenting his work. But when you actually get back into what he was really talking about, it's something so utterly deep, you know, that uh, I'm afraid that, you know, as much as I love existentialism and other things, there's still a lot of really great gold to be panned out of these German thinkers, you know, that shouldn't have been left aside. And one of them is this concept of how to deal with despair, how to deal with depression. He would He believed that once you're united, uh, with your community, that everybody in that community has the same under spiritual understanding. Now, this was left the religion, and he knocked it. Right? He, he said there's some stuff that's okay there, but basically, it's so utterly the wheel had come off years ago, and no, it's it's left it's left civilizations, it's left cultures in the ditch. And then that fact, in in a, like I say, the bacteria that get, gathers around that, then brings us into these Nietzschean despairs. Right, God is dead. You know, so he's he would if if he had lived in our time, he would have looked back at the, at the de- God is dead period and all of that futility and pessimism of existentialism and laughed at it. He said, "I know where that's all coming from. You guys needed me, you know, because I could have told you that when you went off into the ditch, it's like rust gathers. So all the traditions that he saw of the postmodern world, or if, if he would have saw and probably did foresee some of it, is this decadence, the nihilism of Nietzsche." And others, he would have been able to account for why it's there, because the the real understanding of the thread of life has has disappeared. And I make it simple in my work to just say that there's the stereotypical, you know, the, the sort of mythical archetypal, and then the real spiritual logoic movement underneath. And that if you're in this, most people in the stereotypical have lost all insight into you know the connections between these three cogs, and that the the Hegelian teachings and all were to make you very very aware. Okay, that was a little bit preserved in Joseph Campbell. They did great work. Carl Jung has done great work. It's not that it was totally lost to the West, but to all intents and purposes, it was. And therefore, now you're trapped within just the stereotypical level of existence, myopic, one-dimensional, linear, uh, you know, Apollonian. And then the rust that gathers then becomes science, scientism. You see, all of these things can be understood as going wrong because you're disconnected now from the mythical and even something even deeper than that, meaning you've lost the sensitivity because you're not being taught it. You've got John Dewey, you've got education, you've got all the foulness of it. And so the midwell will start to corrode, right? Hegel was very, very worried. He wasn't talking about any draconian state or, or this nonsense that they're teaching you that he said. He was worried that the infections within you know, the midwell, within society would happen because the spiritual underpinnings of it has been lost or misrepresented or just handed over into the hands of religion and that's just a temporary self. There's, only, there's echoes of, of truth in religion, but the religious mind has become itself poisoned. 
you know, through hierarchical control or whatever, you know, the whole thing we know all about just as supernaturalism. I, I think that's yeah. one of the biggest points that teachers like yourself and, and a few others that I've uh, run into, like actually last week's guest, Clint Richardson, we had a little tangent about that very state, that very word supernatural. How can something be beyond or above nature? And there really can't be. It would just be a part of nature we haven't discovered. There is nothing beyond existence or beyond reality. That's the whole of it. I think that that's word, mysteria. that's mysteria. Yeah, because you have people that would rather talk to you about, you know, out-of-body experiences and other dimensions and, and aliens and outer space and all these. Th I mean, even the very idea that reptilian overlords are manipulating us and, uh, you know, farming us as some sort of psychic food source is in my opinion, it's just like a, you've just basically outsourced your own reptilian brain and that own base part of yourself and put it on Zeta reticuli. Yeah. And instead of examining it as a part of you and getting real about it, now it's an external force through which you can blame your problems. And uh, I mean, pick your flavor. There's plenty of externals mm -hmm. to blame your problems on. I, I think that that's a, a really wild thing right now that we're seeing more and more like acceptance of the uh the aliens idea as we are ramping up to a one world government that needs a different type of other perhaps to hold itself Definitely. together mm -hmm. yeah yeah it doesn't negate that aliens did indeed visit this planet at one time but the thing is that uh, that that theory can be used in wrong hands or by a psychologically basically a uh, remedial person who indeed does exactly what you're saying you know, and it wouldn't be the first time that the heavens, you know, in all caps, was used as a projection screen for the psyche. In fact, that's how even astrology comes online, actually, in, in more of a positive sense. Uh, and you're quite right. You see, look at the ecology movement with your, I'm thinking more of the Al Gore, because right? again, within ecology movement, there's a very sincere voice about loving animals, loving the planet. It's not that, but it's been used in wrong hands, in which the whole of the idea of climate has, has exactly, as you say, been uh, used as a psychic processor, right? It, it, the inner ecology, the inner climate, the psychic climate is, is in peril. And so instead of dealing with that directly and, and holistically, we create mysteria, right? Which is you project the idea of the idea out there and you become fascinated by that idea uh, and uh, you go off into complete irrationalism. See, Ralph Ellis is a much more unbiased climatologist or thinker can show you there of your ways, but nobody's listening any more than they are listening to the tens of thousands of doctors now about the pandemic. Uh, nobody's listening, but don't they have medical degrees? Maybe Bill Gates doesn't, and all the people telling you to wear your mask don't in the city street. Oh, we prefer if you wear a mask. Well, then move away and you won't have any problem. Get out of my sight if you don't feel secure and safe. No, but we'd feel better if you wore it. Yeah, but then that feel better culture and that argument of... Uh, I have to do something to make you feel better can be used across the world to destroy the world. You'll easily feel better if you piss off out of my way and then you won't be having a problem. But those who fold up to that rhetoric, oh, I have to make you feel better. I have to make your emotional, I am responsible for your emotional setting. You're not, you just stand right there claiming you're gonna be infected by me and you're incapable of seeing your own mental process, how irrational it is. In fact, irrationality has been normalized now, you see? So this is the mysteria that I talk about in Disciples. It just, it, just, it just exponentially gets created. How are you going to keep your focus, right? And I love all of these subjects that you're talking about in as of themselves as subjects. They bear thinking about. There's within there some very important stuff. 
But when you're using that as a sort of a foxhole in which to dive, because reality itself has become, you know, you're, you're in this reality. Well, now, yeah, you can be into all sorts of boogaloo things. And unfortunately, this movement does indeed, you know, attract a lot of people like that who are, for one reason or another, looking for, you know, one of these uh, platforms that has attracted them. But again, they're not using that self-reflect. They just, they just become fans of it. They just move in on a sort of one-to-one -one level without critiquing it. The apophatic aspect isn't there, which is what you need when you're doing my work. Everything I say has been double, triple critiqued. And I mean, in a very sincere way, in a very desperate way, where, you know, my own life changed because of it, looking deeply into things I believe or what I've read or what somebody else is telling me and all of this. And we should have had that. You know, I wasn't taught that. I just had it naturally. But we, we needed something that, you know, does teach this to children and makes them read your Sherlock Holmes as, you know, and the Conan Doyles and all of that and, and becomes very uh, deconstructive because it's out of that mud of deconstruction that the most perfect sunflowers grow. And we've lost that in the West. We've lost any concept of what we're talking about here. It all has to be instant. It all has to be stamp approved by MIT or somebody else. And it has to be sort of, you know, physicalistic without, see, because we call it- And well, politically people, correct. People Let's say, just throw politically correct in there too. Oh yeah, <laughs> big time. Or somebody would say, sure, Michael, all scientists do what you're talking about. You're just making a lot of hair, but no. Science is at deconstructiveness, but it's not. It's not. Scientism is a paradigm. Scientism is already like even you know Thomas Kuhn, the greatest of scientists, have already critiqued it. Not me. They said, watch out for the paradigm. Once you've bought the paradigm and you're in it, you think that you are then you know the one who's got the great uh, 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 gauge of knowledge. You know the big the big the magician's wand where you are seeing the world clearly. No, the paradigm has already shut you off from reality. Your materialism is the is the worst vantage point to be on, and it's just you within it sitting at the wheel saying, I have complete vision. Well, how would you know? You have an object, because the whole point of a Heidegger and these people is, no, you're not objective. You don't even know what objectivity is. You're living in the word again, like we said earlier, right? People live in the word and the word becomes the reality. So the scientist has heard somewhere that we're, we're objective, everybody isn't. And without thinking about it for another second, just wheels out that same you know, piece of rhetoric. We're the objective ones, you're not. Oh my God. So Charles T. Tart. He's wrong. Ian McGilchrist, Sheldrake, Michael Cremo, they're all equally degreed, if not more than you. And they don't agree. You see, so you have to marshal your facts. You're up against a paradigm. And that paradigm does not self-reflect. That paradigm does not go lightly, isn't humble. Right? It becomes, it becomes completely institutionalized. And then it asks you to conform. You know, it's like there's no letting, there's no leeway. There's nobody from the outside. It's like you go into your medical doctor today and say, you know, I don't like your whole edifice. Your edifice is so powerful that I know what's in your head, mate. I know you're probably a decent guy. You don't want to hurt anybody. But unfortunately, you know, you are hurting a lot of people. You can get in a conversation like that with the average doctor. Uh, what I've said is just right. All that big pharma and all that industrialism behind him is his brain. There is nothing left for you to talk to that will go, yeah, you know, you're right. You know. No. And, and you could send him all the Dr. Mendelssohn books and all the naysayer books of MDs 10 times you know, degree than he is. It won't make a difference. He'll never change unless something personal happens in his life where, you know, uh, but that's out of your control, isn't it? If, some, if he goes through a rite of passage where somebody he knew died from, you know, iatrogenic mishandling or from malpractice, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe that person will change. But you can't plot that. And, the, and as much as you want, 
to say, I'm going to challenge you. You know, I don't like what you people do here. You murder people. You're, you're a death cult. You, you really imagine that you're going to get through any of these people? In England, because it's NHS, whatever, you know, the NHS, it, you don't pay. So in America, where you can actually you can actually fight the system through lawyers, you know, if malpractice was done. In England, you can't because it's NHS. You don't pay. It's part of the national service. What, what, what that has done is created an immunity of these people. They can do anything they want now and do the most egregious experiments and things like that. And you have no recourse. No lawyer will touch you. They go, sure, you got that for free. You know, it's, a, it's part of the white ritual, right? And you're going, what's the difference there? Oh, well, they, you know, they didn't do anything wrong to you. So they got this set up legally where you cannot do anything to the NHS, no matter how bad the service was or who died on the surgery table or who died from a vaccination or med you know, medical. They've got a very, very system because we're, we're, the we're the benevolent, humanitarian, untouchable. Try fighting us now. Try telling me that I did wrong. I'm the doctor. See, so we have created edifices through faulty thinking that are now gaining extreme institutionalized power over us, like your Michel Foucault, right, the total institution, like your George Orwells, and even insiders like Huxley, who are part of it, warned you. Watch out what you're creating for yourselves. He very subtly, very beautifully, you know, very, uh, in a very sophistic way, tried to warn you that you're bringing this about. And so I carry on their message that any kind of draconian big daddy or big mama, whatever form it's going to take, we are actually in many ways living in the shadow of it because we have conjured it by not listening to truth. When you don't listen to truth, when you don't occupy the white squares of knowledge, somebody else will. And that's exactly the dynamic. It's as old as the hills. No matter what age or epoch, you could be in the Roman Empire, and this is the way it works. Yeah, brilliant, man. I'm thinking about how the left brain, right brain, Contrarium, if you will, can be looked at as focus as the left brain zooming in on one compartment of reality versus the peripheral vision, the wholeness. Sure. And psychiatry, even med just medical practice in general, it's focusing on these parts without the wholeness aspect. Uh, Definitely. As you say in your book, psychiatry is a lot like, or psychology, psychiatry is more of the, you know, drugging people up aspect, but psychology emphasizes the imperfections of man by zooming in on these, you know, from this left brain focus perspective, or without philosophy involved to give you the whole picture, as you say, something along the lines of philosophy is uh, concerned with the perfection in reality, the wholeness, right? So when uh, to actually quote you from this book, you say the harsh but certain fact is that without a rational vision of ourselves as perfect beings in a perfect universe, the tireless noteworthy efforts of psychologists and psychiatrists to diagnose and, and mend mental and emotional dysfunction will, like the activities and aspirations of politicians, and also let's just add doctors in there, ultimately lead us nowhere. And I think that that is a, a really brilliant thing to take into ourselves that that our focus will always see imperfection when we look at just a piece, but without the peripheral vision of wholeness, then we wind up with the hundred years of psycho institutional psychology that we've had where society is more messed up than it was when we started on that. And there's more suicides and more, um, you know, depression and a whole list of brand new things to diagnose that never even existed in the past. And some of that is also pharmaceutically based when it comes to, things like mental derangements in the realm of Alzheimer's and autism. But what is interesting is all of this sterilized, you know, me medical 
medicalized doctors as the new priest class direction that society has gone in. It reminds me of the film Zardoz that I would have never heard about without you uh, bringing it up in one of the old podcasts where we talked about films. And this is, uh, it's John Carpenter. Am I right? Uh, John Berman. John Berman. Oh, I always mix up the Johns. Thank you. Uh, Zardoz is this film about a, a perfect society and just how dead they are <laughs> on the inside and right. just how sterile it is and how nothing happens. And it's a perfect example of the uh, stasis of perfect harmony and the uh, sort of evil in that because it only exists if there's a, a collective idea of what that perfect harmony is and everyone adheres to it, right? So I think that uh, I'm not sure where I'm going with this other than I think we're, where we're at right now in both the new age or or even in Gnosticism with the ideas of archons or in the way a lot of people interpret psychology is that, oh, we can just blame the unconscious or we're the victim of some unknowable numinous force that has entered in and influenced us. And I think all of that comes from being just focused in on uh, focus and not seeing the, the periphery of, of self. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, 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 an adjunct to that statement about, imperfection right looking honing in and all of that the the whole is the holism involves our view of imperfection i'm not saying that you know it doesn't exist or that you should focus in it or the whole view even sees the background for an imperfection correctly right so you don't erase this is where the left brain went wrong right and the right brain's encompassment even sees imperfection as you know the grain of sand and the oyster that created the pearl so that's what we're talking about, the contrarium. Both sides of the contrarium are equally right and wrong. So it cancels it out. It's beyond good and evil. It's something ontological, right? And it's only the left brain's myopic idea that goes, that's imperfect. We need science and pharmacology to fix it. So you know, we need to put earrings on the Mona Lisa. It wasn't perfect as it is. you know. And so there's a part of our brain, this little gremlin, that runs around doing that. Now, in Zardoz, of course, that's all, sci that's all about scientism. That was a film. It was beautifully done to show that what would happen if we really did have a utopia in exactly the way that the scientists and these other sort of Apollonian types, you know, uh, keep advocating. And politics is also a huge part of this because they're yeah, all Huxleyan scientific dictatorship. Yeah, basically. Right. Isn't it? And in that film, they're also talking about improving life and living forever. And then they end up actually finding it. So Berman sets this movie in the future. It was filmed in Ireland, actually, County Wicklow. That's why it's so beautifully filmed. Um, but his thesis there was that what happens if these guys, just let's imagine a community, you know, someone like Logan's Run or whatever, that they kind of do get this, you know, it's been ripped off by tons of other films later on, right? Uh, but this was a little low budget version. And it's really, really good because it, it does show you that what happens if that perfection that scientists and, and, and the, most of the world even signing on unconsciously for it, the man in the white coat gets his reality. So the beautiful thing of that film was then it's a deconstruction of that. It's a sort of a Nietzschean think about what would life be like in that perfect dome? You know, Blake Seven, uh, certainly the pilot, is a, a, a fantastic, uh, almost, almost a, you know, mind-bogglingly brilliant uh, take on that because in, in, in Blake Seven, the idea is you've not only got the perfection of the perfect community, you've got the police dragon, you know, the police dog force that takes out the man who, in their eyes, goes wrong. He, something breaks. You know, they don't even... They, they, they don't even they don't even see it as real uh, revolution or renegade. They don't they don't see it as sane. 
spiritual rejection of their system. It's just a fault in the in the glitch, a glitch in the matrix. And in that particular case, they call him a pedophile in order to you know demonize him and, and have him executed or something. While you know they bring up this whole thing about accusation, which I always think was is actually a fantastically prophetic you know way of getting rid of you by telling you you're sexual deviant and concocting a lot of it in lies so that everybody just finds you guilty. And by the way, even in the court case that finds Blake guilty, there's nobody actually finding him guilty. It's a machine. Yeah, they put these two globes on this, you know, sort of like what looks like a stylized uh, justice, you know, the scales of justice. It's it, they put the computer files there and he just has to wait to go guilty. You know, it's, it's, it's so inhuman. And you can't fight back or anything. And we have that now with online censorship. It's just the uh, algorithm. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And even his own lawyer goes, you're guilty, you horrible person. I'm not defending you anymore. And he's going, come on. And then the whole series begins with this travesty when he's sent to this fucking prison planet. And there's an enormous uh, spiritual uh, you know, aspect to the next episodes where the, he gets, he gets uh, freed by accident by way of a computer ship called the Liberator. And the ship is organic. So they get on there as kind of pirates. They're, they're sort of like almost like invaders, like bacteria. But the ship, this is so beautifully done, right? Is it a ship or is it something more? Reads their deepest unconscious. These banditos who get on there, you know, the ship, four or five of them. Well, the ship computer, so to speak, reads their deepest fears, deepest subconscious level to see if they're truly good people or not, if they really are moral or not. And it kills immediately. It destroys anyone that is, you know, immoral by bringing up images and you know in front of them of their past. So it does it to Blake and the people who will become his crew, and it finds them worthy. So they survive, and in the end, they actually are able to escape, you know, the bondage of the planet Earth. They they get saved from their servitude through this ship, you know. So it's all a psychological symbolism, you know, of the the repressed function, and it's all this Jungian stuff, and even even more than that. An extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary comment on the unconscious. You see, so the idea being that the secret of your own liberation lies within your own being. You know, and that uh, the more and more people want to shy away from that, the more and more they'll go for an imposed kind of order and live in the dome. You know, Blake falls foul of it, but you know everybody else is completely conform. They say that the suppressants in the air. Just in case anybody should break, you know, because there are the, the you know the Frankfurt School and all these kinds of people, they know that we're you know we do have pangs and we're not emotionally balanced, and they know there's criminal fallout and delinquency and child delinquency and all sorts of aberrations. So they're working on how to level all of that out. So you have Al Gore with his ecology thing, you know, talking externally about something that's psychological. Now you get Bill Gates talking about vaccinations and biological unhealth and disease to awaken paranoia from within to awaken, well, to awaken, the simplest way is again, I displace to biology, you already sort of, sort of said it, you, I displace to biology the worries that are really psychological. And thank you, Bill, for helping me talk now and process and think about right, my deep emotional plague, but in, in framed nicely in Mysteria. Because that's exactly what they've done. And he's by no means the only one who's done this. This has been wheeled out again and again, and society's complicit in it. I think a lot of people are sad that the, you know, the lockdown might even end. Uh, and again, you can always blame somebody else. You can always blame Bill Gates or George Soros. He sees there's this other dynamic involved. 
in which in the process of making a thing left brain thought, you know, bringing it to the ego's level of thinking, there's also a lot of um, projection and blame so that you're exonerated, you know, of any kind of blame. So politics is a very, you know, well, how do we say it in one of the programs? When you have no actual responsibility for that self, all caps, you vote or you do charity or you become a philanthropist. And if you're very, very rich, you become a super, you know, you become Bill Gates. But even if you're not that big, well, you'll donate to, you know, Battersea Dogs Home or, you know, the, the poor starving guys in Somalia or whatever. All of this is nonsense, right? It's because you're actually uh, wanting to still prove that you're responsible. You've abnegated completely uh, psychological responsibility in the deepest sense of the word, but your ego knows you've done that and is drenched with shame over it. So uh, quickly you look, you know, to look good in the eyes of the world. And that's how I see this shallow, hollow, I'm not against charity by any means, but I, I can tell the fake version of it when somebody is in a deep state of compensation and displacement. That's not good. That's not going to lead to health. Very important thing to realize that a lot of what passes for altruism is really just masking uh, a need for someone to take care of themselves first. I mean, we hear that platitude all the time. You can't give from an empty cup, but that doesn't, just because we hear that as a, Thing that people say all the time doesn't mean we really truly integrate that in some in our being and and act from that there's so many new ways all the time that you can discover the self-sabotage that you've done in the name of looking good for others i mean nobody is immune to this we've all been implanted yeah. with the seeds of this and it might be core to our very being or or it might be something that's been exaggerated by ancestral trauma as you bring out in your work uh how much of a factor that is in, in everything that we've seen throughout the development of what we know of as history. But we are at the uh, end of the first hour, starting to run a little over. Really glad we talked about Zardoz and Blake Seven. Those are, I'll link those in the show notes, as well as another one you turned me on to, The Prisoner. I watched all three of those and yeah. phenomenal older works, lower budget, yeah. but high yeah. brow on the, uh, the intellect oh, yeah. side. Stories, Incredible work. Stories are really good. But before we wrap up, tell people about uh, where they can remind people where they can find your work and, and the scope of it a little bit. And also on your website, we've got four shows together where I've covered uh, virtual unreality, my examination of occult symbolism in video games and the Gnostic seeds that we're going to be pointing out more in hour two. Yeah, that's right. We've done that on unslave.com. Where the podcast is, and you're right, you've been on, and you will be again. Um, MichaelDesign.com for articles. Uh, I have about 14 different websites, so you can get to them all through the main site of MichaelDesign.com. There's all sorts. I like to modulate everything so it's less confusing. So all the different sites I have can be accessed from MichaelDesign.com, and that's also where the articles are, free interviews, you know, that we've done as well. Uh, yeah, so people can come there, but. Uh, the premium content that you've been helping me with is also on onslave.com. Yeah, it's, it's really good stuff, guys. It's been crucial. If you think that I ever sound like I, I know a thing about a thing or two, a lot of things that I've learned came from information that Michael turned me on to. And, uh, you know, it's uh, the great teacher is the one that can show someone, help them see how to think, not tell them, tell them what to think, right? Oh, so yeah. I appreciate your work greatly. And, Thanks um, for acknowledging it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I feel like it's a duty at this point. It's criminally underrepresented, underrepresented, especially considering the scope of it. So I hope to uh, make a dent in that and keep working together to do that 
for as long as we can, because yeah. uh, these ideas are always going to be crucial to our higher uppercase self, not a higher self, but the self in our, of our core, not some mystical separate entity, but the, uh, the holy guardian angel within you could say, right. but That's it. let's move on to the second hour. I've got some really fun stuff about simulation theory and Gnosticism to get into. And man, we bear, we, Probably in terms of uh, disciples of the Mysterium, maybe covered five percent of some of the <laughs> ideas are, that are in that book. If we we maybe got that far into it, so that that's just one of his books, guys. Check it out, and uh, everything's linked in the show notes. And, and thanks, Michael. Yo, you're most welcome, Chance. Let's do it again. All right, guys, we made it to the end of this one. And I'm just going to jump straight into some of the things that uh, they got left on the table, maybe. I had so many quotes pulled out of Michael's book, just the one book that I'd only read one third of, at least the notes only went up to that point, because I knew it was already too much for one show. So I want to get straight in to making a few other points about these topics that I think are important. I guess before I do that, I'll just say this is probably some of the most key content that's ever even been on Interverse, in my opinion. We're talking about collectivism, which is, <laughs> I, th- I mean, have you not noticed that that's like the bane of human existence right now? If there's one thing that ever keeps you from doing what you want to do, it's other people's collective thought or, you know, imposes on you. And when we go about our own lives, adhering to collective thought, what we've got ourself into a psychic self-murder that's how michael would put it and i'm i'm not kidding guys there's so much on his website unslaved that fleshes these topics out i mean i don't know how you could be unconvinced that this is an important study but just look into it more i think if there were a larger number of individuals that were educated and armed with this i guess understanding of collective thinking versus individuated selfhood we'd be able to help each other a lot more we'd be able to diagnose what was going on around us much more quickly and cut to the root of the problems but it's ongoing work so if you were supporting michael at unslave.com like i do you'd be chipping into a good cause and you get so much content out of it it's not for the faint of heart it's not just like entertainment you go into his premium lectures it's like sitting in on a college course in philosophy, in psychology, in conspiracy, or whatever topic of the day happens to be. And that's not even to mention the really good podcast they do every week. So I'm going to first read this quote from Lao Tzu, which Michael has in his book. This quote just really nails it. Do not go about worshiping deities and religious institutions as the source of the subtle truth. To do so is to place intermediaries between yourself and the divine and to make of yourself a beggar who looks outside for a treasure that is hidden inside his own breast. If you want to worship the Tao, first discover it in your own heart. Then your worship will be meaningful. Now, the Tao is not something we brought up, but if you're unfamiliar with the concept from Taoism, it's basically nature. It's the ongoing flow of ever-changing eternal life force energy that animates all things. And it it is itself, it is no thing. It has no qualities. It is all qualities. So the Tao is a really amazing study. I'd like to maybe do a whole podcast just on Taoism with Michael. 
because I probably identify as a Taoist too if I had to be an ist or whatever. It's the closest thing. And, you know, that doesn't mean I align with everyone that's ever called themselves a Taoist, but just the idea that there's really nothing to follow except the spirit that animates all life, which is in you. It's really important because that's the religious experience that we would want to seek, not the religious experience of collectivism, which would be, you know, protests, churches, even war. People actually experience euphoria in those situations when you like jettison your own will to join the mass hysteria. There is a type of rush that people get. This is something that Michael's work helped me realize because you can see it in people, but I wasn't making the connection because I don't know how many times I've ever felt that. Maybe like at a big concert in a large crowd when everybody's in the same wavelength, listening to the same band or whatever. That's kind of a, you know, that can be a euphoric rush, but maybe in that case, it is a benign example, but potentially benign, depends on the individual, of course. So it's not like you can't ever, you know, mingle into a crowd, but you just never want to give up your actual selfhood, your actual decision-making, your morality. Morality is human-generated. What that means is not that there's no such thing as right and wrong. It's that right and wrong only has any meaning if you give it meaning. And that's a tricky caveat because people would be like, are you saying there's no absolute truth of right and wrong and natural law? And I've used words like natural law before kind of moving away from that because there's no reason to have any kind of dogmatized description of conscience. You have a conscience or you don't, and it's fundamental and foundational. Uh, I'm going to read another quote from Michael. This is one direct quote of his. He says, as a Taoist, I do not concern myself with religious experiences not rooted in the self. This is because communing with the self is a religious experience. It is the beginning of one's spiritual experience, so to speak. I'm not against religious experience because I can well believe in a religion, as long as its church is the self and its high priest reason, one that does not suppress imagination. Such a good, yeah, such a good quote. Because as soon as you're accepting cosmology from somebody else and philosophy from somebody else and right and wrong from somebody else, doesn't that suppress imagination? And what I mean by that is imagination is actually thinking. Thinking isn't a, a Imagining isn't a type of thinking, I should say. Thinking is a type of imagining. All psychic phenomenon, all mental phenomenon is out of the imagination. So anything that's suppressing imagination, suppressing thinking, it's the same thing. He also says, we can continue living unconsciously by immersing ourselves in the collective abyss or preserve and strengthen our imperial selfhood, realizing that what distinguishes a god should and must distinguish each human being. Yeah, Asher, yeah. I hope I said that right. I am that I am is what that means. And we've heard guests before say something along those lines, especially Clint Richardson, which is a yeah, really great realization that you're not a noun. You're actually a verb. Uh, you are a process unfolding. That's the Tao. Realizing or understanding the Tao is understanding that you're basically a uh, you know a process. You're not thing you're not a person place or a thing now i have other things other things to say but first let's go ahead and hop over to looking at what was in the plus extension if you didn't catch the plus extension oh that's where the good stuff was that was when we kicked off the real discussion on gnosticism and whatever you think about gnosticism 
whatever you don't know about it or do know about it, we can put all that aside and just look at the actual foundational tenets of it, which is what we tried to do with Michael here, which is to put it really simply that the world is an illusion, the body is a prison, and uh, the reality was created by some lesser God. That's as simple as I can put it. And it's so crazy. <laughs> if you really start, if you give your own thought and imagination to this, it becomes really unbelievable. And it is a tempting belief to jump into, especially when you first start learning about it. You're like, oh, this explains all my problems. It's why life is so hard and why there's evil in the world. But you need to think more deeply about these questions. Maybe, maybe evil is there so that we can learn what we are by experiencing the opposite, for example. So of the things we covered in uh, the second hour about Gnosticism, we talked about whether or not doubting the world exists makes sense or that the world is uh, simulated in a sense or fake. And then that got us into talking about Gnosticism's link to simulation theory, which is a huge interest of mine. I think it's kind of one of my more original research directions, although Michael's had a lot to say about Gnosticism because of what I know about video games and the gamification of society, simulation theory as well. I think I've made some good additions to that conversation overall, especially in the episodes I did on Unslave Podcast. If you go search my name on their website, there's four episodes currently and we'll do more. And there's some of the coolest things I've ever been a part of as far as content creation goes. We talked about the idea of the jailbreaking of reality the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, we talked about Cyberpunk, which is one of the things that was a subject on Unslaved. Cyberpunk, the game that had that crazy Transhumantero. And the subject in Cyberpunk that we discussed was the idea of putting your mind in a simulation, sort of uh, akin to ascending past the demiurge into the true reality if you catch the Gnostic you know, similarity there between digitizing your consciousness and all kinds of ascension programs. Ascension programs are dangerous. They tell you that where you're at and what you are isn't already part of perfection. Uh, we discussed AI algorithms and uh, <laughs> physicists who claim they can prove reality is a simulation. We discussed the definition of simulation, which is hypocrisy, which is collectivism. There's a huge thread there. I'm excited to go back and listen to this one again, honestly. And you know, we also got into archons and archetypes. Jung's take on ecstatic experiences of the self being taken over by numinous forces that feel like they're outside of the ego. And then we talked about proving whether or not God exists, if that's possible, or what an experience of God would be like to an individual. All that and a lot more. Incredible plus extension. I hope you check it out on rockfin.com. R-O-K-F-I-N dot com slash interverse that's my new premium channel you can also do it on patreon that's not going away patreon.com slash interverse but rockfin's a great deal because you get all the other channels on rockfin with the same fee pretty badass and a couple of things that came up in the show too i think this was in the first hour we took we brought up movies like zardoz which is z-a-r-d-o-z and the television shows from the i think 60s Maybe later for Blake 7. Blake 7 and The Prisoner. Now, all three of these are extremely worth the watch. Blake 7 maybe isn't as good as you go on, but the uh, concept of like what it means to fight the Empire and be a, a rebel and how destructive that can be and just the 
the revolution, if you will, of returning back to where you began whenever you struggle against the external reality without changing yourself. Great show for that reason. But if for nothing else, watch the first episode of Blake 7 where you see the future of the world as the technocrats want it, where everyone's living in a bubble world and you can't even go outside and they're all sedated. And yeah, uh, <laughs> check that one out. Zardos is an incredible movie too. Again, Z-A-R-D-O-Z. That one's just wild. If you want to see Sean Connery in a red diaper, <laughs> pretty cool movie, honestly. Great for being so low budget. And The Prisoner, that's a show that I feel like everyone should watch because it explains collectivism through the experience of this character that's been uh, kidnapped by the government and taken to this weird community to be brainwashed and have information extracted out of him. You might relate to that one a lot <laughs> if you watch it. I recommend all three. Wouldn't have known about those without Michael's podcast. He talked about them in some early episodes, and they're really good. Another point that is a really quick one, but, you know, when it comes to selfhood and the concept of everything being all one, it's a dangerous concept, actually. There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, first of all, if the oneness that you're talking about comes from all the pieces coming together to be one, then what happens to the pieces? And if the oneness you're talking about was a primal unity that's been divided into many, well, then it's not really one anymore, in a sense. I mean, you could look at the whole universe as one. But is oneness even a phenomenon that exists in reality? Have you ever seen one of anything? Uh, the more wise... <laughs> Like the Taoists, for example, they have a concept of everything coming out of a trinity. The ancient, you know, Celtic tribes had the Triskelion or the Triskeli, which is that symbol of like sort of three spirals. And that's one of the things in Michael's book that he breaks down really well is disputing the idea of oneness and of dualism as well, which is what most religious traditions are and worldviews are, are rooted in one of those two things. And uh, getting into the truth of the fact that everything that's generated comes in some sort of sort of triplicate, a mother, father, child type of setup, right? And whenever we get through this, I guess, barrier that we have erected, this glass barrier between us and world, where we say, that's world, this is us, and we experience selfhood in all things, it is akin to being both alone and all one simultaneously. And if I say this all the time, but if you look at all one and all alone, it's the same thing. It was just one L taken out. <laughs> and we'll talk about what it means to take out an L. That's just think about it. What is an L? So the last thing maybe I want to talk about is uh, some of the refutations of Gnosticism that we didn't even mention maybe, or I just want to recover them real quick. I pulled these out of the presentation on Gnosticism on Michael's premium channel that I just helped him create. I say helped. I just ran the slides. He did all this work and research. Great stuff. And I love it because it jives with what I was. It fits where I was already going. Like, it's not like he's telling me what to think. He's just like providing me all the better ways to say it and showing the evidence from history up to now. But he had one slide in the like 140 slides in this presentation that was just a part one. It was amazing. That were just the glaring contradictions of Gnosticism. 
So first of all, we're commenting on higher dimensions that no one can possibly know anything about. And if they did, they wouldn't know about it in a way that could be explained or proved to anyone here in an experiential way that would actually constitute firsthand knowledge. Also, what did the Gnostics and early Christians actually know about the natural world that they demonized? If we look at the track record of all these governments and religious institutions, what have they done for the world? What have they understood about the world? They mostly just consumed it and destroyed it by fire so far, if you haven't noticed. So maybe maybe they could have taken a note from the hermetic traditions and seen the perfect harmony in nature that's already there and then learned from that instead of uh, continuing to feel worse and worse about how traumatized and uh, disconnected they are from source. <laughs> uh, also, Gnosticism exalts evil far beyond reason. When you think about evil in the world, there's evil and there's good and there's even neutral. And there's not just one of those things, right? It's all three, the tri triplicate thing again. Gnosticism wants to tell you that the whole world was created by a fallen, evil, lower god. And so if that's the case, wouldn't it all be evil? And in fact, I guess the only thing that's good is the shred of incarcerated god spirit that is inside all of the living men and women. And so in this reality conception, this cosmology, you're really putting evil into way too much power. You're saying everything's evil. It's crazy. Just come on. <laughs> and I know a lot of you maybe have been t tempted by Gnostic ideas. And I hope no one just got like really turned off because like, he's wrong. I know the Archons are real. I know Yaldabaoth is the Demiurge and he Je he's Jehovah and yada yada. So, okay, if that's what you want to think. That's fine. But I'm not here to piss people off about what they've taken in on as religious beliefs. I just want you to see, see these patterns so maybe if you agree with me that, yeah, this is unreasonable that we are demonizing nature in the body and exalting evil and commenting on supernatural mysterium that no one could have any firsthand knowledge about other than personal self-knowledge, in which case it's only meant for you anyway. The last question would be, though, if there is a lower God that created this whole evil realm, wasn't that God created by the higher God? And why would the higher God allow the lower God to do all this evil to his own self or the fragments of himself that have been trapped? I mean, come on. When does Where does this make any sense? Where's the reason here? Reason's jettisoned. It's fled the scene. Common sense has fled the scene. This is what Michael calls mysterium. And even the idea of a creation of the universe is pretty unnecessary in my opinion it makes more sense to just say it is what it is i am what i am it will it always was and always will be we don't need beginnings and ends beginnings and ends is just back to that idea of the oneness because no matter how you conceive of the beginning whether it's a big bang or a god well what was before that what created the big bang what created the what created god and you just go back and back and it's turtles all the way down as they say i have no need for this anymore I mean, I'll use the word the creation, but I don't mean it in that way as uh, like it was manifested out of nothing. I, in a sense, it is. <laughs> if you start to learn about existentialism, you can start to make that argument that everything comes from nothing. But that's a very nuanced conversation, a whole different conversation. And either way, 
Uh, I think that just for there have to have been a nothing, it implies somethingness, right? There has to be something for there to be nothing to be nothing in comparison. Anyway, makes way more sense to just consider it all as eternal being. Being is being. It never needed to begin. There doesn't have to be only one. And we can move on with our lives and just enjoy being, maybe, and get better at it. Have more coherence and harmony. That's what I'm about. So I hope you love this episode. I'm so excited that I'm about to publish this and send it out to the world. One of the coolest conversations I've ever been in, and I really respect Michael's work. I mean, you probably caught that drift, but a lot of the great things you've heard me say maybe over the years, if you've been following me for a while, have been influenced by the ways that his work has led me to think. Not the ways, not the things he has told me to think, because in fact, I actually don't agree with all his conclusions across the board. And I would hope he would agree, and I'm sure he would agree, that I shouldn't agree with those conclusions across the board. Maybe someday I'll take on some of the same conclusions later. Maybe sometime I'll refute some of his conclusions, and it's no love lost. I still look at his work as a monumental stepping stone for my own. And yeah, he's up there with some of the greatest researchers. If the world doesn't totally fall apart, I think hopefully in a, in a just world someday, Michael's work will be remembered on the level of other great philosophers of the past, Kant or Schopenhauer, whoever, name him. I think he's that big of a deal in terms of just how much he has put his life and soul in, let this work be his life. And uh, it's cool. There's, it's just a lot there. You can learn a lot. Really good stuff. Uh, psychology is crucial. So yeah, um, hopefully you are going to be able to hear this second hour on Rockfin or you already did. Don't forget rockfin.com slash interverse. Only $10 for all the things on Rockfin or $5 for just my things on Patreon. So pick your flavor. Either is good. And a lot of good people are taking on board with uh, Rockfin now, including Beth Martins, who's coming back soon. Beth is an excellent YouTube video creator. And also our old friend Corinne Wilson, a cult priestess. She's gotten herself a Rockfin channel. Our family is growing over there. And I hope to just totally take over the place with <laughs> our people, if you will, if we have a type of people. I mean, we're all extremely individualistic, but that's the kind of people I like. So it's not like a collective in a sense. It's a bunch of coherent individuals. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to play us out with, um, you know what we didn't talk about? Michael makes music. He is a classical guitar player and a great one. In fact, getting into listening to his music reignited my love for guitar music. And I've been super into classical guitar music for a few years. Thanks to first hearing some of his albums. One of my favorites is this dude, Sam Griffin, who makes uh, covers of video game music from my childhood, but with classical guitar. And sometimes like some of those Mario songs on classical guitar, it is crazy what that guy does with his fingers but michael tesserion look up imsar music i'm going to play a song called crown of oberon you can find it probably on spotify i know it's on itunes music to buy there but check out his youtube i'll link to that in the show notes in the episode description along with all the things we talked about and that'll be it for now it's uh been a really fun week putting this episode together thinking about all these ideas and 
reading Michael's book and uh, working with him on his projects, I feel super fortunate that he decided to ask me to do that because it's been a great side gig for me. Not only am I able to get paid for a type of work I love, but I also get to work with an, a researcher I respect and the project I'm working on is a presentation I'd be watching anyway. So it's pretty awesome. So uh, yeah, check the episode description. You guys are great. Um, I care a lot about all of you. <laughs> I care a lot about you taking this stuff on board and being on guard for Gnosticism in the world, wherever it rears its head. It is perennial. It comes back. It grows up again after it's been chopped down. When you get to the roots of it, and the roots of it is Mysterium instead of selfhood, personal experience. Mysterium being thinking about ideas or having ideas about ideas that are other people's ideas. You see what I mean here? It's a tunnel of artificiality. It's illusion layered upon illusion. And everything, pretty much everything supernatural that you're ever told about is that until you experience it yourself. And in which case it becomes natural. There's no such thing as above or beyond nature. So be wary of all that stuff. I know I've entertained some crazy things in my history, but my discernment is getting better all the time, I think. Okay, I'm supposed to be wrapping this up. You guys are great. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, it's almost a 25-minute outro. What a big show today. Awesome. I love it. All right, catch you guys next week with another extraordinary episode. I can promise you that. Bye-bye.